intersection of art, craft and design. I have several questions for the panelists and then we will be taking questions from the audience. I do have to say I feel quite a great privilege to be joined by four powerhouse women. A warm welcome to Gap Scott, Grace Lamb, June Vandemar and Pratik Wale Ahmad. Um, I would like to start with a couple of introductions. I'll try to keep them short, but it's hard to keep them short considering how much wealth of knowledge those ladies have. First off, Gap Scott. Um, Gab is a designer and artist with 20 years of experience. She currently holds roles as an art consultant and interior designer at sister companies Art Theory and Design Theory and is a committee member at Design Prea. Her career has spanned production design for MTV, furniture design, gallery directorship, and a practice as an exhibiting artist. Clap. <laughs> She collaborated with international talents like Hugh Grant, Naomi Campbell, and Mario Testino, to name a few, and her work has appeared across the world, including Vogue Italia, Japan, and Australia, as well as Harper Bazaar Australia, Tadler, Numero, and Ad. She's a board member at the Revelation Field Festival Perth, she's an avid fan of Formula One racing, and a passionate advocate for promoting discussions on the topics of menopause. Clap again. <laughs> She's a founding partner and co-curator of the Indian Ocean Craft Triennial, senior vice president of the World's Crafts Council Asia Pacific Region, past chair and current board member of the World's Craft Council Australia, and a member of the advisory board Curtin School of Design and Built Environment. last year received attention internationally and her second exhibition sign is currently on at Colbert Space. You should all go and have a look. Right, well, the actually, I do want to say a very big thank you to HD Digital and Digital Creators for this video broadcast. HD Digital is a Perth-based media agency that provides exceptional photography, videography and streaming services as well as content creation for events, businesses and brands. That's him sitting right there. Well, welcome and thank you. Um, I'll kick off with Gab. There you go. We're ready. Okay. You're an artist and a designer. What has been your journey in exploring the two? Firstly, thank you for beautiful introductions. And if we're talking about powerhouses, I'm putting this back on Julia for a second. She's put this show together through sheer will and determination and grace, um, the way she always works. Um, also, a part of my gang at Design Freo, so I know the kind of woman she is, and she's a weapon. Um, so that's an important. Um, <laughs> 
what a pleasure. Um, so yes, look, artist and designer. I'm a designer who makes some art. The term artist seems much too generous um, for me. But yes, I'm an interior designer. I have a um, an art practice that comes really out of the love of using my hands, and I'm a committee member at Design Freeo, which for those that don't know is a not-for-profit not group of um, really passionate Fremantle-based, but not exclusively, um, designers across a you know, range of fields. And we're just really, it's really in sync with what we're talking about today. We really care about bridging the gap between the public and the design industry, how to remove some of the esoteric nature that comes from design and make things really tangible and understandable and meaningful in a daily sense. Um, so that's a little design freeo blurb. Um, look, my background started in film, I shifted to interiors, the art side of my business, the hospitality, uh, sorry, the design is predominantly commercial work, so hospitality and workplace probably take up most of my time. And the art practice came about almost accidentally. Um, art design and the interplay between them is interesting to me and it can only be explained in my brain as are asking the questions, or asking questions in general, and design answering questions. So we'll talk a little bit more about this idea of function, but design is one thing to me, and, and it's often, there's an anticipation with design. We anticipate when we're designing something, there's some designers in the crowd that I know that will understand this, there's an in anticipation of where your work will end up. There's an anticipation of its use, of how it sits, of what it is and what it means and how it's used. Um, and art and craft are liberated from that idea a little bit. Um, there's a subconscious, there's an asking, um, there's an internal pondering and then this gracious kind of expression. And while, while design still is full of expression and values driven, there's a real duality there. Um, and so many designers, which is why I ended up with an art practice of sorts. You'll hear us say, particularly with interiors or architects, we get into that line of work because we love making. We care about things, how things go together. We care about um, composition. We care about the tactility of things, materials, what they feel like. Um, we're the annoying people that when we walk into a, a shop, we all do this, touch everything. Right, everything. I'll touch every piece of stone or timber I can get my hands on. Now that comes because we love what art and craft are. Um, and in a way, making for art and craft, making is remembering. I like to think about this idea of like, you use your hands, there's a cultural remembering. And we get into design because that means something to us. But we often sit at a computer for way too long, right? So, um, so many designers will have a love project, will have an art project, will have an extension of their work because we are desperate to get back to this idea of what our hands feel like moving and touching things. So my art practice came about because a girlfriend who's a real artist, a painter, said, I see this show, I'm gonna have this show, but in the room there's gotta be objects. Will you make objects? Now, spatial design is comfortable for me. 3D is comfortable for me. And I always thought, maybe there is going to be this 3D art expression, but I wasn't sure what that was going to be. So 
it was that opportunity that threw me into an art practice that sits alongside my design practice. I also work in 2D large formats um, collage works. Again, 2D doesn't come naturally, so that art practice is cut and paste because I had to be touching things. And any painter will say, well, we use our hands. There's something for me in the mechanical nature of cutting and gluing something that had to be the base of 2D works for me. And you have been cutting and gluing since your childhood. You were telling me about you being in your bedroom and having to plaster your entire wall in cuttings, and that was your horrible expression. Like, that was the first touch point that you had with art form when you were a kid, and then slowly you got into interior design, and that's kind of how you got into that. But yes. touching and doing tactile work and crafting was your first touch point, right? Yeah, hands are important to me. It's why I gesticulate so much in the talk. It's that thing. But yes, I was the dorky kid, and you hear it all the time. He's like, oh, I was doing all these things in my house and my room, and I was always collecting junk from the salvage yard and making cool furniture that sat next to my bed. Like, I care about the composition, you know, there's the putting together of things is, is makes me really tick. And so I guess now I work um, in art consultancy, predominantly in public art, I now get this really nice opportunity to combine a love of construction, the courage of working with artists who laterally span lots of materials and scales and scopes, um, and uh, yeah, built form art and lateral thinking, things I care yeah. about. So you just to the, to the completely next level since you were a childhood <laughs> all the way to where you are now. Just cutting and pasting on a very professional yeah. scale, that's basically where you're at. But I'll get to Grace actually now because I feel like it's a really good connection of, you know, where we're at. But so you have attended Central St Martin's Art College in London. Tell us a little bit about your experience and what that connection of tactility that you had and just overall, you know, that background. So I'm going to look at my notes because of this whole brain fog, perimenopause sort of thing. It's, the struggle is real. Um, so I started at St. Martin's around 1994. Yeah, some of you weren't even born. Um, it was a three-year degree course. I didn't do fashion, I did graphic design. And it was a very loose course where they gave us a lot of freedom to do whatever the hell we want. And that's why St. Martin was such a good art college because they gave you so much freedom to explore of whatever you want. Um, I couldn't really, understand what I was, why I was there and what I wanted to do because it, it takes a, quite a while to try to find something you're good at and when you're in like your early 20s or 18, like, it's actually quite hard to understand what you want, you know, and I always admire those people like you, you know, when you were young, you know exactly what your interests are. Um, I had too many interests since I was young, you know, I'm like, I like interior design, I like clothes, I like this. So it, it took me a while to find my way. Um, the course was, I guess because of the caliber that you know, it could bring, like all the, all, the, all the lecturers, it opened a lot of doors for the students. And having said that, um, the teaching was so loose that you kind of are left to do, are, are left to be on your own. So for some students, some of, the, some of us were quite lost. Um, not until I think towards the end of 
second year or like the third year, the beginning of the third year, when I knew I had to, you know, knock out a, a whole portfolio, I started panicking and kind of like sat there clubbing instead of like working, you know, because I was just trying to put it at the, at the back of my mind. But I think I put my whole portfolio together in like the last two, three months only. And then I got a really good grade, which was, and then I realized that I actually work really well under pressure and everything, all my ideas came really quickly. Um, but through that kind of education, it gave me an idea of how to look at art and craft and design and what I look for when I see something. It's mostly, the concept to me now is very important with every single project I get involved or I used to get involved, or even if I look at, you know, all these lovely, amazing ceramic pieces, what is the idea, what is the story? And also what kind of message it conveys to, to the audience. And then, um, I think every every object, every project has a history, and research is so important um, to me. Um, what kind of story it's telling? How do you change from a traditional way of thinking to to mix it with a modernized way of thinking? And Singhasa has really encouraged people to experiment. I actually did when I was there. It was the first generation of Mac, the, the bubble. I don't know if any of you remember the bubble. I, that was me. I didn't even touch my computer for like three years because I was so scared of it. So talking about doing things with hands, my whole portfolio was, everything was done by hand. Screen printing, photography, I would just meet, you know, if I see like a really cool, good looking girl on the street in a tube, I'll go up to, hey, hey, do you want to be a model? I want to photograph you. They just think I'm a freak, you know, just keep asking all these girls um, to be my model. And luckily they wanted to collaborate and then I did my whole portfolio based on photography, styling, and then third year I met the owner of ID magazine um, in London and it's a really, it's a street magazine, a street Bible magazine, and he came to give us a talk. And then I said, um, oh, I really want to have my own magazine, I was so naive. And he was like, oh, you look like you, you know how to dress really well, do you want to become a stylist? I'm like, what is that? So then I started interning for him and then the rest is history. So I think to have that kind of openness and, and, and creativity freedom is really important when you're starting young. Mm. But like you, it sounds like throughout university you did really have that deep connection with just doing things with your hands. Like obviously computers were just kind of starting up, but it feels like you had that connection with the tactility of what you work, how you present. And I think you snagged like the winning spot at uni for actually being, not doing what everyone else yes. were doing. Yeah, exactly. You wanted to be different, just like, why would I use a computer? I can do all those really cool things with pure craft elements and still deliver an astounding result. I mean, the fact that I, you know, I'm not very good at computer, that, you know, <laughs> it's kind of played to your benefit in that sense. But I also realized that this, through this whole journey, there's no incorrect outcomes. There's only like, if you misinterpret a brief, a brief, then the result could be irrelevant. Yeah. So that's what I understood from this whole journey that I've been on. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, Kartika, I'll jump into you for now. Um, I'd love to share, I'd love you to share what brought you to lighting as an arts medium in the first place. Mm. Um, is this is funny. Mm -hmm. yeah, it is. Um, so I studied interior architecture at uni. I think when we spoke about this before, like, I forgot this whole section of my life. So I started doing <laughs> my thesis, which I like, I was just, 
don't know, I haven't even finished uni. I've got like, you know, like one unit left. I'm just never going to complete. And I like, I just hate uni. It's just not for me. So I started doing a thesis um, and I based it on my friend. So my friend, whenever he'd come over, he'd always wear like sunglasses or a hat. And I was always really intrigued by it. I just didn't really quite understand. Go to his house, he'd like shine his lights in different directions. I was just like, what the hell is he doing? And then I started to understand when I'd go over, I'm like, this is beautiful. Um, and I started replicating it in my own house. So I think that's what started that journey. And I based my whole thesis upon that and then looked into you know, light and space. I studied um, the Morgue House um, in Wembley, if anyone knows that. Yeah, so that's where I started with that. And then um, being like a more hands-on person, I looked into how I can create my own lighting and how like my own lighting can influence people in space pretty much. So yeah. Yeah. So I do think that your work is a perfect example where the line is quite blurred, whether it's an art object or it's a design object. So do you consider yourself an artist or a designer? Um at first I was very anti being an artist for some reason, I don't know why. I think I was quite afraid. But then I realised that maybe it gives you more opportunities. Um, I think being a designer for me, it, in my head it meant that like I had to sit behind a desk or I had to work for other people. Um, you know, becoming like an interior designer, like an architect, whatever, you just have to go to a firm pretty much. Um, there's not really any opportunity to just work for yourself successfully as you know, a young person. So then I was like, oh, I might as well just like call myself an artist because that's how you get into galleries pretty much. <laughs> so it just kind of like shape-shifted my, um, my perspective on that. Um, but I do think my work is more design-based. That's how my brain thinks and that's how my pieces work. Like if the, you know, one hole is one millimetre out, it's just not going to work or, you know, you'll get electrocuted. Like it's very, um, <laughs> yeah, you'll die pretty much. <laughs> like the gas leaks out or something, um, your house will explode. So there's more to it than just like it looking good and it giving you a certain feeling, like you have to have certain knowledge. Um, um, yeah, so. Um, I mean, we don't want your house to explode, no. so I feel like you're doing quite well in that kind of sense. And I mean, I really, it's my personal opinion, but I really do believe that your work is this absolutely pure combination of art, craft and design because you make every single piece yourself. There's such a huge design element and functionality and intention in it, but there's also an artistic message of how you want people to feel. What do you put into your work? So congratulations on your show, by the way. It's absolutely incredible. But you can clap now, actually. That would be good. <laughs> So going kind of in a bit more into this whole relationship between art, craft and design, I want to talk to Jude. How do you perceive the relationship between the three? Okay, so that's... That should be on, flick it up and we should be good. Yeah? You're okay. on. So look, you've asked everybody personal questions about their growth and then you've asked me this question. So please forgive me, everybody, because I'm not perimenopause. I'm just a really old person. I forget <laughs> things. So I've written some things down, and I'm not going to try not to read it, but I'm just trying to retain the thought process. Did you just take that one in case it's a first crack? Okay, I'm sorry. 
Okay, look, I think it's really important to note at the outset that the distinction between art and craft is a Western construct. It doesn't exist in most parts of the world. This is something that the Western Hemisphere has decided we need to make these distinctions. So, um, and we're living in a space and time where definitions and prescriptions have become increasingly important to us. We like to box things. We really like to have some kind of order. The only thing that I can say with any certainty is that art is a slippery little sucker. And if you reckon you've got it nailed down, you're going to fall flat on your face. Because nobody has the answer at any one time. They might have the answer in a speck of time, but art moves constantly. So I think Aristotle was the closest to anybody who'd come up with a definition that I understand and I can relate to that art is not about the outward appearance, it's about the inward significance of what we see, what we experience, how the world is to us. It's an expression of truth. And the other critical part about art is that in a real concrete sense, it's absolutely useless. We cannot make bread with it, we cannot hold it, we cannot, it won't make a perfect coffee. It's useless in a very, very specific way. So, uh, but craft, on the other hand, comes from a deep tradition of usefulness. Woven baskets hold grain, beaten metal cooks food, wooden boxes hold dead bodies. Gold is used to, um, you know, to express wealth, to be a trading system. And those things have all got a practical value, and they come from bucket loads of understanding materials, functionality, aesthetics, problem solving and traditions. But craft is also the basis of art that moves us. Um, the techniques and materials associated with craft have not only been the basis for domestic implements, they've formed some of the most exquisite objects in the world. So the rose windows of Chartres Cathedral are objects of craft. They operate because light comes into them. And yet what they do is they move us, they take us somewhere else, they take us to a place of spirituality, a place of where anything is possible. And um, the, in the similar way, churches, mosques, um, temples all around the world do exactly the same thing. They're infused with the works of skilled craftspeople. Um, taken individually, they could be seen as just purely decorative, but taken as a collected composite whole, they can also be seen as expressing the highest ideals of art. They express the inward meaning. Um, and their usefulness lies in the perceptions of the viewers. As to design, and the design is a really important component of this whole thing, whether a fork is beautiful or not is a different question. Um, the fork itself fulfills the function. You know, it pierces food without bruising it. It fits in nicely in our hand. Um, it's pleasing to the eye. And those are all functions of design, obviously. But in relation to objects of function, whether it's clothing or kitchenware or objects of worship, craftspeople have always been designers. And I think that that's the thing about um, whether you, whether you are living in a small village 
with some reeds that you want to weave and to make into something that is purposeful and useful, you are designing that purpose as you make it. And you're asking yourself questions. Is this right? Oh, this is interesting. This might, this might feel better. This might work better. So to answer your question in terms of uh, craft and design, they're the tools that we use to define, to box and simplify our lives. And how much difference those terms make to our experience is a different question. So do you think, and it's a question to all of your guests, can a utilitarian object be considered art? Uh, absolutely. Um, and similar to what Jude spoke of, I was recently, and we all have, you know, these moments, because if you're here today, you care about those sort of things, but I was recently in Sicily. When you're in Italy, you are in art and design in a unique way, right? And, you know, I'll go to all the galleries, and I'll go to all the museums, and I'll swoon over the history of it all, and the grandioseness of it all. But I was on an island in Sicily, and I did walk to the same path every day for five days, and I'd seen all the art, and I'd seen all the design, and I saw this beaded curtain hanging in the window of a shop, and it tripped me out in the craziest way, more than anything I'd seen. And I was like, whoa. I really went like that when I saw it. And I passed it on the first day, and I was like, Weirdo, it's just a big curtain, get over it. We've all, I mean, if you've lived through the mid-90s, you had a weird passive one in your bedroom, right? So I was like, stop caring so much about this beaded curtain. And I passed it and passed it, and on the fifth day, I was like, I'm going to have to find out about it. And I went, appeared in this historic building, and there's a bunch of really cool hairdressers behind the beaded curtain. And, the, you know, the juxtaposition of that made me laugh. But again, it's what we're talking about today. It's about craft and modernity and history and culture and how we make things and how we made them hundreds of years ago. But the woman in the hairdresser spoke no English, I spoke no Italian, but she could see me tearing up over the beaded curtain. She thought I was loaded. But when you looked at it, I mean, I can't, I, so many beads, so intricately individually threaded, the colour composition like nothing I've ever seen before. It was the highlight of a four-week trip, this curtain. And I've since thought about that. When you know you pose this pattern today, I was like the beaded curtain. To me, it was like the clearest emotional response to history and culture, a culture that wasn't mine, but I could feel it in that thing. And when I finally got this uh, hip young hairdresser to explain to me, he thought of, he was like, you just go to, the, I don't know, you find them around. It was all he could get out in English. And I spent the rest of the trip like, scowl. I've never found. And I, I never will. And I found one plastic, you know, in the red dot equivalent. I found the plastic Italian version. But this is my long walking answer to craft hits different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone else has a take on that? Um, yeah, I think when 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 we look at like, practical objects, sometimes we don't consider it as, as like a design because it's, it's mostly for function. But um, a friend of mine actually is a product designer and he created this booklet called Lumio and I really urge you to go on this page and look at it. Because he, he changed the dimension for me to how to look at a lamp, which is just functional, you know, just a little side table lamp. 
But this lamp opens up like a book, and that's why it's called a book lamp, and it comes in different sizes and shapes. And the way he designed is a practical object, but yet so beautifully done that it's almost like an art piece. So I think that the line is quite blur when you try to talk about art, design, and craft, because nowadays you can combine all three and also make it a very useful and practical everyday object. Um, and I think with those kind of designers, they always push boundaries to see how do you make something boring and try to go. And that's what's so good about this book plan. Um, definitely urge you to go on to Lumio IG and have a look. Sounds amazing, yeah. Um, we'll actually stay with you. Um, I want to hear your thoughts about how art design and crafts translate to fashion, especially when we talk about fusion of art and functionality. I mean, fashion, the fashion industry is an industry that we always collaborate with artists. You know, I mean, we collaborated with like Jeff Koons and Versace, you know, have Andy Warhol's prints all over the, the collections. So it's nothing new and it's a really good money-making process, right? Um, also a very commercial one, because fashion is a very commercial industry. Um, I think, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. Um, yeah, so in, you know, in the past history, you know, designers have always used, for example, textile designers to collaborate. Like digital prints on, on the material, um, there's a, a really cool brand called Enreal Age. Um, they are the epitome of combining technology, new technology with fashion. So what happened with the last fashion show, the Autumn Winter Collection, is they use like a photochromic material on all the models. So the models would come out to the stage, the catwalk, where it like an outfit like this. And then and slowly, two UV light scan comes down from the stage and scan the whole outfit and it turned into a pattern, color pattern. And this color pattern will last only for three minutes and it'll turn back to white. So this is a perfect example of technology, art, and craft combined together to produce like an amazing effect that no one probably ever thought about that you can apply that on fashion, you know? Um, and another brand called Caproni um, for the spring summer show, you probably saw on the news even that Bella Hadid, the model, came out and they spray her whole body. She was basically half naked. She was wearing like a naked. They spray her body with this fabric. Um, it's like a sprayable liquid fabric. And they created, yes. And it was created by a scientist and a fashion designer. So they spray this kind of like latex kind of feel, elastic-y material, and then just cut it out into like a dress. And you know, stuff like that is just, just, you can say it's a gimmick, but it created noise and it helped the brand to elevate to another level. Um, so the fashion industry is definitely pushing even more technology, combining with everything that we normally use. Yeah, I think you're wearing actually something yes. quite interesting as well. Yeah, so this is like an easy Miyake um, design. So when I bought this, the, the, the salesperson, this was so lovely, I was in Tokyo and I bought it and, and he took half an hour to tell me how to fold this, even up until today. So this folds back completely flat. It's great to go on travel. It's just like a piece of paper, it falls down, which that's my husband's job because I have no idea how to do this still. Um, so he's worked out how to do this, lay it flat. Um, so it's like for, for designers like him, um, 
everything that he designs, the material he, he uses and how it folds, it never creases. So when I go on holiday, I always pack something cool and fashionable. I'll definitely bring this or all these like creations that I have because you don't have to iron anything, you know, when you go on holiday. So this is practicality as well. Um, so when people, when, when people always ask me, so how come brands like Comfort Garçon or, you know, Juno Watanabe or all these, you know, even Hussein Shalayan, how come sometimes they, they create outfits that no one can wear at, but it's still on a catwalk? I said, because you're selling a dream, you're selling a fantasy, and we all need some kind of entertainment, you know, but it's, some of these pieces ended up in like the V&A Museum because they are like art pieces. So even though it's, it's not a ceramic piece or like a fine art painting, a lot of these creations are really worth being in a museum just to admire. What about minimalistic pieces that are currently taking over where you don't show the labels, you don't show the brands, they're very quiet, but the quality is incredible. The design is, you know, beyond. Like, can you consider those pieces art just because, you know, they're quiet, they're unassuming, they don't really, scream from the rooftops, there is no huge statement about it. Do you think they are? Oh, 100%. Sometimes I kind of feel like being a minimalistic designer is actually harder to, to convey the message because it's so simple. Um, like, you know, designers like Hamlet Lang, you know, back in the day, or Kevin Klein or Joe Sander, which I've worked on many shows, you know, their, their, their ethos is, you know, minimalistic, you know, quiet luxury, that's what we call it now, is definitely harder to achieve because people don't quite understand why it exists because they just think that it's really easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jude, actually, I think that's a really good transition here now is, do you think that traditional craftsmanship techniques have their place in contemporary design or in like modern fashion, just, you know, current contemporary space, I guess? To me, I think um, AI is the obvious direction for us all to be thinking about now. Um, do you need the skills of traditional craftsmanship to create a house or a fork? Um, and probably not. If you can draw the thing on your computer and send it to a printer, then you've got your fork, house, thing. And you can ask AI to create a house fork for you with some parameters around, you know, size, colour, materials, and then you presumably get your house book. So AI can do all of this. They build on knowledge previously generated around balance, around how hands work, how you hold objects, how sharp a point needs to be, and what the most famous forks that have been made, you can design a new fork. Why? Um, and that then, negates the need for human beings to learn how to bend, cut, braise, create, um, and cure metal. And it can even replicate fingerprints and errors so that it looks as though it's been made by, you know, a tireless worker in a lowly paid workshop with a mud floor, nobly making a fork for you. So I reckon, um, um, Perhaps this is not your intention, but I do no, think no, that is the, the critical thing for us. But the question for me is why, and we always answer it's because we can, yeah. um, because it's better, maybe, I don't know. But I do think that there's a real 
important, valuable contribution that AI can make to our lives. It's not necessarily making forks and getting rid of craftspeople. It's probably more around those big, big questions that we have that we fail to be able to answer, like how we move people around without using too much fuel and um, how can we move towards a greater understanding of each other without killing each other for not really very many good reasons. So I think we should ask AI to do that hard work rather than um, taking the role of class people. Yeah, I feel like Gap might have some things to say on that. Like I know you very much believe in the power of collaboration and craft and the way you do your work at the moment is through that collaboration with people who put their heart and soul into things they create with their hands and the craft they've mastered for years. Can you want to talk to us about that? Um, yeah, I am mad for collaboration and I think um, it is, you know, sounds hyperbolic, but like it's the greatest part of any work I do is who I do it with. Um, and I get teased by colleagues and friends like my gang, they're called, because I've always got either some silly personal idea of something I want to make, or a client wants something, or I, um, you know, at the moment I'm making a table for a client out of octopus traps and, and some recycled stone, and the client's like, but how will you, how will the octopus trap and the stone get together? I'm like, don't worry about that, I've got the game. And there are, 20 incredible local makers that I can think of who help me bring ideas to life. And the, the solution-driven minds and the play, play being so important, the playful way in which we get to problem solve is the bit that I love. So. I'm fascinated and terrified about the, you know, AI conversations as designers, we have them all the time. And absolutely, I can see how my role in the building of a house will maybe not that, in the not too distant future, be redundant. But the collaboration and the sharing of knowledge and culture and historical practices, it's not, it can't go, it's what makes us human. So, I hope that AI has, I understand it is just part of this forward rolling that we are on, this trip of life that, you know, keeps moving and changing. I'm cool for it. But there will always be people who need to sit side by side and feel what it feels like to make. Because it's, yeah, it's what makes us, makes me tick. <laughs> Would anyone like to add to that subject, I guess, per se, Grace Grafika? Um, I think for I think for me, I, I think of it as like cooking. So like obviously we can all be given, you know, the same ingredients or the same utensils, but like at the end of the day it's just all gonna taste different. So, you know, you can program a computer to have those fingerprints and whatnot, but it's just it's just never gonna be the same. As you were saying, you know, with sculptures and pottery, like you, it, it absorbs like your stress and your emotions. I think that's the same with 
any form of like design work where you're hands-on, um, you just feel people's past experiences and their ideas just through the way like even glue is applied, like you can see their stress and how it's like either perfect or not. Um, yeah. yeah. And that kind of takes me a bit, like we've been talking about mistakes a little bit and imperfections. Is that something we should embrace or, you know, should we chase the perfect object? Should we chase, you know, the perfect piece of furniture that has no marks? Like, is that something we should embrace, the imperfection and mistakes? And like, how does that translate into our everyday life and how should we look at it? I think it's quite unrealistic to think that anything is perfect or even human beings are perfect. I, and I keep telling my son, you know, you're never going to find a perfect partner because they don't exist. You know, you're, you're delusional if you think that, you know, it exists. Um, and in terms of, you know, making mistakes when you, let's say, doing a ceramic piece, I actually really like it to, to look at something that is not perfect and have some flaws or, or have cracked. It's because that is part of the journey, right? And you will want to know from the artist what happened. So it's all about storytelling, I think. And, and also because I'm, you know, I'm from Hong Kong, I'm Chinese, so I, my kind of perfection might be different from yours. Oh, so it depends, I think it depends on a lot of your upbringing and your cultural background. And sometimes I think with thriving for being perfect is a good goal to have, but at the same time, it causes a lot of stress and anxiety and everything. And, and it, could, it could dent your um, growth journey. So unless you know how to really manage it, your expectations, um, yes, aim for perfection in some ways when, when you're working, but at the same time, don't think of mistakes as a bad thing either, especially nowadays. Yeah. I, I think as well, I've just been to Georgia Carter and seen an extraordinary exhibition which uh, by a ceramicist from Bandung, um, who's trained, he lives in Tokyo, that his work is really about perfection. It's about achieving perfection on a grand scale. And I, I understand that desire, that impulse, you know, for him. He's completely OCD, which, which he confesses to. But um, I understand that impulse and that desire, and it's admirable and it's exciting and it's extraordinary to see. But I think because we're humans, we like the other thing as well. Like, we like both ends of this and because we're humans and there's such variety within us there will always be the people who wish for perfection, want it, revere it and those who want to see the wobbly bits. Yeah. <coughs> Anyone? Okay. <laughs> Anyone from the audience had a you know, take on imperfections and mistakes and like, is that something you cherish? I guess the ceramicist in the audience as well is... Um, see Annika right there, so I'm putting you right on the spot, but um, I forgot I have a mic. Ceramics and cracks, whether they're cosmetic or they're actually cracking the functional piece, should we cherish the pieces that are imperfect? Like, so we're sitting in the room, um, but each and one of those pieces sometimes would have taken six to eight weeks to create and all the way till the end you don't actually know if it's going to be exactly how you wanted it, if it's going to be perfect, maybe there's a cosmetic crack, everything, anything and everything can happen, but I know you have a very close relationship with embracing the imperfection. Yeah. I want to hear a few words yes. from you. 
for an example, like our art piece. Um, our art piece shown here. Um, we created two, and then after the second firing, we found a large crack in the um, wall piece. And because it was something that we had never attempted before in terms of uh, technicality, so. Um, but it was, it turned out to be like we didn't have time to make another one, or we weren't happy with putting something else that we had out there that was not, um, it was not made for the other piece. So this was made for this exhibition, and so we just decided to embrace the crack and we um, conceived it basically. Like, you know, it's a beautiful yeah. result. You have such an incredible design background. Should we strive for perfect in architecture? Should we strive for a perfect house? Should we strive for a perfect piece of furniture? Should we embrace the mistakes, perhaps by the architects?
point where they're like, oh, now you're established, apparently. But yeah, it wasn't really clear to me thinking about it beforehand, because I haven't really, you know, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I haven't really had to deal with it, but then when they were introducing all you three, I was like, okay, I'm definitely emerging. <laughs> I've got like two, three years experience. Um, obviously, I've been doing stuff since I was little, but yeah, um, it's a really hard one. I think yeah. once you maybe, yeah, I don't know. Judith, I would love to hear your take on it. And sorry, I didn't actually ask much about your background in the beginning because I just see you like this incredible wealth of knowledge. I was like, another thing fiction is a huge introduction of how you started. I just want to know what you know and what you think about all those amazing subjects we're covering. What's your take on the version versus established? Like, you know, it used to be around age, and then it became apparent that that couldn't possibly work because in Australia we started having Indigenous people who were 60 years old who started painting. So it's not about age, you know, quite clearly. Um, and you know, I don't, again, it's one of those constructs that's probably been designed by funding bodies, really, and for, for their own arcane reasons and not really of much value to anybody else. Well, we all see ourselves as being, um, well, you know, I do anyway, you know, slightly incompetent in, in many areas. So I, I don't know, I don't know about the value of it. Um, it it's, it's just one of those things, I'm sorry. I don't really have the words. There is it. no answer, yeah. I guess, but it's just something that yeah. criticise. And I think on that, um, sorry, I've got noise on it probably circles back to what we're here to talk about today and I think you can look at the four of us and you and other you know talented people in this room all the lines are blurred I mean look at the breadth of experience we have here and the paths we took to get here plenty of sidestepping plenty of blurry lines plenty of ideas of like oh well I was this and then I was this and then art craft and design need no boundaries on any of them they're not just cousins they're closer than that there's no name for the definitions. And I mean, I feel really strongly about that because the, the power of my career has been in its sidestepping. And everything I do has the most beautiful blend of art, craft and design. You know, we're at this exhibition because we care about those three things. We, um, so the emerging established feels the same for me. I just think we're fortunate to be in a time where none of it really matters. Yeah, that's... Also, I think you don't have to stick to your lane, right? I think nowadays mm -hmm. we all need to have like two or three careers, apparently, you know, so... Ten. Yes, right, Ten in order to survive. Um, and also, you know, I'm now I'm interested in doing movies and directing and all that and stuff, so why can't I be... Why can't I do that? Because I'm coming from fashion, you know, mm -hmm. I, can't, I have a different eye, you know? So I think nowadays we don't have to stay in our lane. That's, mm -hmm. that's the thing. That's the main thing, yeah. Um, I think it's probably time, I have no idea what time it is, by the way. Um, 12, 10 past 12. Oh, that's pretty good. Questions from the audience, don't be shy. Um, I, to be frankly honest, I just, I'll just drop the microphone. Um, but um, I want to encourage a bit of a banter. Like, there is no right answer, there is no wrong answer. We have so many incredible opinions around the room. 
um, ask a questions, let, let's talk about it, and then when you're fed up asking questions and answering, we'll just all go, well, you go home, I stay here. Um, but, anyone? Yeah. Um, we sort of tend to generally think of craft um, design in terms of physical objects, and um, can that same idea of craft and craftspeople be taken into the digital realm, into, you know, uh, spaces that are not tangible? Absolutely. Who's, who's that to, husband? <laughs> Anyone who wants to answer. <laughs> I'm not answering. I talk to him all the time. <laughs> you don't talk board, to us. I think the answer is absolutely. Um, and I'm just... Um, there, there are so many examples, I guess, of craftspeople who move. It's just grace to say, nothing's going to stay in their own lane anymore. We really don't. We can do whatever we want, when we want, as long as we can make it work. Um, but having said that, I'd like to ask Julia a question because this is a really extraordinary thing to take on. You're not with an organisation, you're not with a gallery, you're not with an institution. You've just decided that this is something you want to do. Yeah. So can you talk to us about why? Good yeah. question. Um, I've been asking myself the question why for pretty much the last eight months, going, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, it is a self-run project, it runs on love, passion, tears and um, I guess thanks to my husband paying my rent right now, that's basically the reality of it. Um, I don't know. I don't have the right answer just to go, this is exactly what I'm doing. Um, but then the other week, one of the artists said, thank you, and I almost cried. <laughs> and I was like, maybe that's why I'm doing it. Um, and I don't, sometimes I don't hear when people say thank you to me. I'm like, what are you thanking me for? Like, I haven't really done anything. But knowing that I am creating a platform for people to showcase their work that they're proud of, that they've been working on for weeks, that's their medium of expression, that's their livelihood, um, and anything and everything in between, it just makes me happy, and I don't really know why. It's, um, yeah, who knows why, but the, one of the reasons is just, I want others to be happy, I guess. Is, is that a good Reason? I don't know. But also, I think that ceramics are very much underappreciated. It's, we know, is ceramics an art form. Quite a lot of people I would talk to, um, it's like, you know, what do you work on? Like, yeah, ceramics. Like, oh, pottery. I'm like, well, yes, to some degree, ceramic art and pottery, there's like, they're two intertwined. Are you a potter or are you ceramic artists? Artists. To me, a potter, you start with pottery and then you may evolve into ceramic artists. And um, I think that people that I have around here, all the 17 artists we have around are, they are potters, they can be potters, but they have emerged of being ceramic artists. And I want to celebrate ceramics as an art form. That's basically it, I guess. Thanks. But thank you for the question. <laughs> are you a maker, Julia, as well? Uh, no, not a maker. I don't have the patience for it. Um, I went to a class once. 
I felt very envious about achieving perfection, just going back into perfection. I was like, play does not do what you want it to do, just because you asked it. Um, it's completely unpredictable, and I take my hat off to every single artist. I walked out of that class and I messaged Anne Lindegaard, and I'm like, I don't know how you do this. Um, I generally don't, but no, I, my, I mean, my arts medium, I guess, is forestry, so I do botanical design. That's kind of how this thing accidentally happened. Um, maybe one day, when I calm down a little bit. <laughs> I feel like my husband could be a bit fodder. He's a patient person now, apparently. But not the dexterity. <laughs> not the dexterity. Well, you can't have it all year, I guess, but yeah. This has really resonated, and congratulations, it's absolutely beautiful and such an inspiring talk from you all. Um, and I just wanted to make a comment, which for me, ceramics and clay is a remarkable medium, and this idea of perfection and when to stop. Um, and I think one thing that I take from it is risk-taking. And that is an area that, um, yeah, my friend here sitting next to me is a real risk taker and I am in constant admiration of being able to let go and being able to, um, yeah, really let the hands take you and the concepts yeah. develop and having those narratives running through things is, uh, yeah, very rich and rewarding. Yeah. I think that's also... Um, one of the reasons why this show happened is I want to push ceramic artists to explore. I want them to make mistakes because if you don't make mistakes, you don't grow. Growing is hard. You don't want to do it. You actually uh, things are like I mean I have a feeling each and one of you would resonate. If you want to take something new just because you want to do it, whatever your motives are, actually doing it is incredibly challenging and it hurts and you don't want to do it and things don't work. And like, that's why I'm looking at Amy because she's right, right here and I know like her and Serena, they work hand in hand, but um, it's year of perfecting that crap that make it look so easy. Um, but um, it's like taking one step at a time and just kind of going back to the ceramics, I guess, is majority of the artists here, they've never made a wall piece before. Um, so that was a part of a brief, I guess, you need to create an object, and most of the artists have done that before, and then you need to extend your craft into the wall piece, and that piece essentially needs to be your artistic expression of ceramic craft, etc. Um, I think they've done an absolutely incredible job, but it was quite a journey for some people. Um, number of emerging artists never even, you know, completed a set before that would kind of have a relationship with them, or um, ceramic artists that have been in the industry for 50 years never made a wall piece, like Charmaine Ball right behind us, she's a prime example, an incredibly talented artist, never made a wall piece, I'm like, why not? And PR, like, absolutely incredible result, and, um, that kind of actually takes me to asking questions. Um, I found that more established artists ask more questions. They always ask really good questions as well. It's something I haven't thought about. So, yeah, I want people to ask questions. I want people to feel challenged. I want people to hurt a little bit so it's much better after and just grow. 
um, but in that kind of sense, pushing the comfort zone. Yeah, I think it's quite important for artists if you stay within your comfort zone all the time. Yeah, why not? But I mean, I just that's also just me. I'm mean, never stop. But anyway, but also how to look at normal object and push it to another level, right? And I remember when I did my St. Martin's degree. I had two months left and I had nothing in my portfolio and then I went to my local tube station and there was a photo booth there and I was, had to take my renew my passport so I was like, taking passport pictures like this and I was like, what if I did my whole fashion shoot in this place, which is about the size of this, right? So I think for the rest of the month, I took all my clothes and I set up my working space there and I became very friendly with a tube manager <laughs> bring me coffee and I chit-chatting, eating like, you know, English biscuits and all that and stuff. And I basically just saw this object and I thought, I think I can do something really fun with this, you know. So I basically decorated the whole inside of the photo booth and then created, created this um, kind of like catalogue thing, that a, a book, a fashion book thing, just strips of um, passport pictures. I don't know where it is now, I wish I kept it, but it was so so much fun and so inspiring just to push myself, just to see where it's, because I had no control over the photography side, because it was just a passport booth. Um, but sometimes I think those kind of accident happens for a reason. When you think you can't do something and you really challenge yourself, once you've done it, you're like, oh shit, you know? So yeah, so it was a really good experience. And there's something about that too, isn't there? You, in a studio, which is a controlled environment, Because every time anyone comes into the photo booth to take pictures, I have to get out. I have to take out all my, you know, like papers or whatever, I'll stick them on there. And they were like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, this is my degree portfolio. They're like, oh. So they're like, oh, it's kind of interesting. And so they start wanting to know, oh, all these people are like in suits, you know, they go to the city for work. Um, so it was, it, it kind of struck another conversation that it helped them to look at things differently, it helped them to look at the photo booth differently. So that means that you were interacting with all mm. of those people. Yeah. In a different way that you wouldn't have. Yeah, I asked one of the guys, I said, like, can you just stick your foot in while I took a picture? He's like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an extension in that what you created at the tube station is a form of public art, mm. right? And I work in that space, which, you know, a part of my job, it, it, very rarely does a public artwork exist already, right? So it's always a commissioning process and then you're asking somebody just like you did for their ceramic artist to make a wall piece. In public art, we're approaching somebody often with just a studio or a gallery practice who has never considered leaving those four walls. <coughs> and we're pleading because we think we can see something for them to leave the studio and come out into a construction landscape where they have to consider thousands of people walking past their artwork. They have to consider safety, accessibility, weather, how we're making this thing. These artists haven't worked with a fabricator before, they work in a studio. All of a sudden this collaboration thing comes up and we're working with traffic wardens, architects, landscape designers, a fabricator, and what a thrill. And some artists don't want to be invited into that realm. And that's cool. They want to stay doing what they're doing because they're doing it beautifully well. But how rewarding when an artist says, 
I could take this really small 2D drawing and I could put it in a public space, which is you know, what your project is. Um, and there's a real risk taking, a real courage in that, and so much learning that comes from the challenge. I find public art fascinating. That's something I'm currently learning quite a bit about. Because um, there is such an incredible component. It is art, it's literally called public art. But the design element that needs to go into it is incredible. One would not exist without the other. Mm. Could, could we ask somebody who's a craftsperson who is currently making a public artwork what that experience is like? Sure. Um, this is Melissa Cameron, who's making the work for the new Murdoch Health and Knowledge Precinct. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a jeweller, but I come from an interior architecture background, so everything that everyone has said this morning has resonated with me. Um, and I'm... Thank you, Mark. So my, my jewellery practice started before my architecture practice, um, but I worked as an interior architect for about five years uh, in Perth, and then I did more training at university um, in Melbourne um, to become a jeweller, because the, the craft aspect is very all-consuming when you make something like jewellery. It has to function, it has to be beautiful, um, and it obviously, a, a design aspect. There are some jewels who just sit at the bench and come up with things out of more of a craftsmanship and a knowledge of materials. Um, but given that I had a, an AutoCAD background, I've always launched in drawing first and then object afterwards. I just had the benefit of um, getting to make the object, which is the bloody hand side of things, which I deeply resonate with. Um, Part of my practice really is a meditation, um, and I kind of have the privilege of being able to do the drawing and then execute the work. So when it came to scaling up, um, I was quite used to doing the drawing, um, letting go of the work, and the execution was more familiar to me from my interiors practice. Um, but in the way that things have evolved, I have literally just spent the last two days in a factory in uh, Osborne Park putting the pieces together uh, onto these, you know, two meter, two and a half meter tall panels, 1100 wide, pre-drilled holes, and uh, myself and the manufacturer, who also happens to be my sister, who's a cabinet maker, we just literally were getting colors together and then putting them through the holes, making sure that everything was in the right order and making sure that all the joints were secure, making sure each of the enamel pieces, which for the first time in my career, I actually outsourced the enamel side of the work because normally I work in tiny little pieces and I can fire like a hundred at a time, whereas these ones, I could maybe fit two of them in my kiln. So I used an industrial enamelist in Victoria. Um, and I suppose that part, letting go of that, has been somewhat of a challenge, but at the same time, not completely unfamiliar. Um, and I've spoken with a few people about this recently um, who are architects or interior architects that they often get into something like ceramics or jewellery making just to bring the method of production back closer to themselves because it gets very unwieldy and big and they don't get the satisfaction of being able to make something. 
and it's kind of uncommon for me now, but I can walk into my studio and make a pair of earrings in an afternoon and walk out with a new pair of earrings to wear. And there's there's so many, like there's the, the hand skills meditation, there's the flow state of designing and manufacturing something, there's the requirement that the object have, you know, gravity and is able to um, fulfill certain uh, things like Jude was talking about before, like it's got to be able to drape or hang well, it's got to be out of robust material, it's got to fulfill requirements, but it's also, as a jewellery work, it's it's an adornment, so I, I have also an understanding that, you know, the, the adornment has to adorn, it's got to function as a beautiful object as well, so it's it's interesting to go large, but I don't think it's going to be all of my practice because there's still um, that enjoyment of creation. And I think earlier, everyone was sort of, June beautifully put, like the, the division between art and craft has been kind of an irrelevance. And that's something that I have come to really understand throughout my practice that it's my brain is being used in much the same way, no matter what it is that I'm doing. It's the aesthetic eye that I have that's making the final choices. And it doesn't matter if it's in an art context or a craft context or a design context. It's the same brain that's doing the same work. So I think that's the thing that can carry me across things. And as soon as you can kind of see yourself in different rooms, doing different things at different scales, then I think you're kind of free to create to whatever level that you want to. It's um, the barriers that are, that are put up are artificial, but you have to be able to really acknowledge that inside of yourself before you can kind of push through all of them and move on. Beautiful, cool. Thank you so much for sharing. Right. Unless anyone else has questions? I have questions. Yeah. Um, Hopefully we have answers. Hopefully. Um, I would also like to take a moment to thank Julia because um, when you're talking about you know why you're doing it, you're doing it for well people like me who are looking for representations of contemporary ceramics that are engaging and challenging and providing inspiration because to help engage me and encourage me and show me that there's a space opening to push myself to reach for that. So thank you. Um, and then it's been wonderful to hear the different, the range of, that all of you have been able to offer today. Thank you to all of you as well. Um, there's been, um, there was a couple of things I had questions about and I guess we won't probably get to all of them. Um, but the idea of, um, particularly I suppose in relationship to AI and the way that it's starting to evolve. Um, and I hadn't even thought about the concept, the, the idea that potentially it could be looking to engage those difficult social questions about ways of, for example, like how to move people or maybe there's ways that it's taken us a long time and we can't agree on a lot of things, so maybe there's an opportunity there that I hadn't thought about that because to me it's like, oh, it's scary, like they're gonna come and take opportunities. And, but, um, and I think there's, there's a potentially insidious side that can be frightening, but also 
we have an, sometimes a knee-jerk response to not to be afraid of what we don't understand. So those chances for us to engage, which I think was great to hear as a new perspective. Um, but I do wonder about uh, then the what it is that the art, artist and the craftsman um, and the designer, and as you've said, is in many ways the same role. What is it that their contribution can offer that the the um, the position of like the role of the artist and the mark of the maker and that um, internal struggle or internal development of what they've put into themselves. How do we, I feel like because of the way that ceramics is starting to kind of come back a bit, there's kind of been this new cycle that's been opening up as a space. Is that maybe an indication that there is this other appreciation for that imperfection and that willingness to be vulnerable and like how can we encourage that or how can we to keep an emphasis like Julia has done to encourage and engage artists to push themselves in this um, space here. Um, was there a question in that? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I think because you've all got such yeah, it's been great to hear all of you and the very interdisciplinary nature of your work and um, it's also been inspiring because a lot of people, also myself, have had very meandering spaces to get to where they are. Um, but how do you see, I guess, that interplay between the balance of spaces for AI but primarily the what is the role of the, the maker or the artist and there, what is it that they can contribute? Um, I think for me, it always comes back to humanity. We're all human, we've all got something to offer, we can all make and give in a different way. And all of that's really, really important to society, to relationships, to structures, Responsibility as human beings to, to use it.
to say that maybe the, the modeling industry uh, is going to be in a dire situation as well. You know, they will stop using real models, which I doubt they will because, as we all know, we need human interaction, and that's why we're all here, right? You know, we could be sitting at home and looking at our phone today, but we're not. You know, we're still here. There's always going to be people that are pro-technology, and there's always going to be some of us like me that might. I'll use it, but it's not my whole life. Product 